Good morning, everyone. I'm actually one of those investors that does buy a double-digit percentage of closed-end funds, so it's, it's a nice um, segue from Ken's excellent comments. I don't think I've ever been in a more beautiful room. I don't know if other, maybe the Vatican, I guess. Uh, but, uh, but to talk about a more beautiful product is closed-end funds. I'm very excited uh, for the, ooh, this countdown clock hasn't even started, so I'm on bonus time. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about uh, closed-end funds today. I'm going to offer Saba Capital's perspective on why closed-end funds at a discount to NEV are truly a special investment opportunity from my perspective and tell you some interesting stories from the trenches. Many of the topics that I'm going to discuss today, like why are closed-end funds at a discount, um, are are they really that illiquid? Uh, how do you decide which ones to buy? These are not at all new questions, but I think our take as a large institutional investor in this largely retail market does bring some fresh perspective. I've arranged the presentation into four topics, though as you'll soon see, I'm prone to jump around a bit. Um, I'll start with just who we are, um, some observations, uh, and anecdotes from our experience in the uh, closed-end fund market. Um, why activism? And then why we launched uh, an ETF of closed ends, ticker CEFS, CEFS, last month. And by the way, for this room, I'll make this joke, I can't believe that ticker was available. How did no one take CEFS as a ticker before? So anyway, we were, we were very uh, happy to get that. So that's, um, that's been, been a bit more than a month. Um, uh, so who are we, who we are? Um, this will also explain why closed-end funds are a very good um, fit and the arbitrage that we do uh, because of the other types of things you do at, at the firm. At Saba Capital, just to take even a step before that, um, prior to that, um, the, the group uh, and, and some of the team that even manage closed-end funds daily uh, worked with me back at Deutsche Bank uh, starting uh, in the early 2000s. I was there in the late 1990s and onward, and over time I came to run the junk bond department, corporate bonds, convertible bonds, and so many of the underlying securities that are in uh, closed-end funds, uh, we invested in equities, of course, um, are, are areas that I, um, uh, I had a good amount of uh, experience in uh, at Deutsche Bank. Um, at Saba, we're a hedge fund that focuses on uh, various forms of arbitrage, um, relative value investing, and also uh, we invest in different kinds of volatility products in Asia and the U.S. Uh, and on the arbitrage side, for example, we'll invest in the secure debt of a company um, long and short the unsecured debt of the same company. So capital structure investing, where the you can own the secured for the basically the same yield as short the unsecured and, and, uh, and try to profit uh, in the event of a default or otherwise. We invest in credit against equity of the same company um, and uh, credit derivatives, uh, the, the parts versus the whole, which is you know a corollary to investing in closed-in funds at a discount. So I give you that flavor to understand that at, at our heart, we're really relative value investors looking for um, uh, things that rhyme with each other and trading one versus the other. So, so closed-ends against ETFs are, are a very natural fit. We're also known for uh, discovering the London Whale uh, trade, um, which produced a $7 billion loss for JP Morgan about five years ago. Um, and in that trade, we, we discovered some unusual patterns uh, where timing, time of the month, volumes, uh, just the feeling that, that I had as a longtime also derivatives trader that something amiss was going on. And, and the reason I bring this up is because the index that 
they were uh, supposedly manipulating uh, called the IG9 tenure, who's the tenure, original tenure maturity of an investment-grade index, into this whole hullabaloo that caused J.P. Morgan a $7 billion loss, was about an index that they had pushed way beyond fair value to a level that would uh, surprise you. It was, it was all of a little bit more than 1% of a, a mispricing to NEV. So, so, you know, how do you lose $7 billion on a 1% mispricing? Well, you, I guess you do it 7 billion times, but, but um, 700 billion times, excuse me. But they had um, such massive size. And so just I, I mention that because, because every, every day, you know, about a dozen hedge funds and about five or six banks and other institutions are pricing the NEV of the super liquid credit derivative indices that trade tens of billions a day versus the sum of the parts and trying to arbitrage those indices most of the time to hope to earn 0.2%. So, so when I started getting interested in closed-end funds, and you know, they weren't always at double-digit discounts when, when in, over the time we've been invested, but, but just the idea that in 2014 or 15, you can find holdings that are attractive to us at 13, 14, 15%, and that's sort of left to the sidelines by institutions, large institutions for the most part, but but those same institutions will take incredible size exposure to trying to arbitrage another discount to NEV or premium to NEV of a whopping 0.2%, and those two worlds could coexist, uh, I thought was, was pretty amazing. And, and by the way, that, that, uh, that credit derivative index arbitrage, it's a mouthful, doesn't have the creation redemption mechanism that the earlier question alluded to to keep the price in line. It, there's no closed loop. The, the ar it's not a perfect arbitrage. So that even speaks more to how interesting it is, how much money it will go towards discounts, uh, but, but not to other discounts that are, you know, uh, uh, you know, 50 times bigger. So, okay, so why don't I move on to um, just some observations and anecdotes from our experience. My, my, you know, most of the time, if we have an investor presentation for our hedge funds that own closed-end funds, investors will ask, um, uh, you know, how, how is it here? So that sounds great. How did we, how did we get here? And these are generally in large institutions, big pension funds, but they're far less informed than a group like this. So it's exciting for me even to speak to you all because I know, you know, this is... This is the group where I can speak at, at a very high level. But when I ask, get, ask very basic questions, you know, their presumption is that they're not in this space. One main reason would be because they can't get enough size. That would be, that would be the explanation. Um, and so, you know, when you go into, well, at, there are many periods where you can buy 5 to $10 million a day across your favorite 30 holdings. And, um, uh, and you know, that doesn't sound like a lot to, to a giant pension fund. But, but $8 million a day, 125 days later, we all know is a billion dollars, and that's, you know, only half a year later. So, you know, with patients with very close relationships with the uh, brokers um, who, who traffic in them, and then when you have a position that's of consequence, you get the call when there's a block for sale. Uh, I think it's, it's a misunderstanding that the, the space, you know, it's a little bit like jumbo shrimp. It's, it's not... It's not small. It's you know, it's it's big. It's small. Fixed income closed-end funds uh, are about half as big as, as as fixed income ETFs. You know, and no one thinks ETFs are small. So it, it really, I think, gets nestled in this area where institutions think it's not worth their focus. Um, that would be one reason. We'll go into some of the others. And uh, and you know, in our first year, we were able to buy a billion without with being very sensitive to trading costs. Um, on that anecdote, on that topic, I'll give you the following anecdote. I was at a conference down the street at the pier. Um, and Jeff Gunlack was speaking, and I went up to the Bond King, right? That's what he, that's what he calls himself, right? Um, and, 
or he makes everyone call him when they introduce him, and that's fair. So um, he is the bunking. So I went up to him and I said, Jeff, I, I am so glad to meet you. I am the largest holder, or second largest holder of DSL, um, and we think it's amazing. And, and he said, uh, uh, I love closed-in funds. I couldn't love closed-in funds anymore. And you've seen him on television talk about how when you bake in that extra yield you get and you look at the earnings yield on equities and, you know, he's, he's gone on conference calls to talk about them, he'll recommend closed-in funds in barons that he doesn't even manage. You know, he's, he's, he's the bond king loves closed-in funds. And so when I said to him, you know, uh, not just DSL, but we own about a billion in closed-in funds, he really took like a half step back, which must take a lot for Jeff Gunlick to take a half step back. And, 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 he, um, and he said, I didn't realize you could get that many of them. And so the Bond King, who loves them, it's not like he's in, been, you know, seconded in a faraway place, loves closed-in funds, and he himself, he's an issuer of them. He was surprised uh, that, we, that we had accumulated a billion, and we could have had quite a bit more if, if, you, know, if, thing, if you know, under different circumstances. We, we may still. Um, another anecdote is about the previous Bond King, so everyone knows what I'm talking about. So, so Bill Gross, you know, when I used to talk about the product and I would meet with the, some of the largest pension funds in the world and they would say, I've never heard of this, um, and I would try to, uh, try to uh, affirm it as a reasonable investment, I'd say, well, Bill Gross probably is the largest or one of the largest holders in the world, personally. He owned, over time, uh, you know, over a couple hundred million of closed-in funds, still owns something like between 150, 190 million of PIMCO closed-in funds. And so the anecdote there is that everyone is familiar with how nasty a fight PIMCO and, and Bill Gross were in over the last couple of years. Everyone has seen that. It was splashed all over the Wall Street Journal. You know, hatred would not have been a, an excessive word to describe the feelings that they had towards each other. And so I would make the you know, following joke as well, that you know, as much as Bill Gross hates PIMCO and they hate him and they're in a big litigation, um, according to what you might read, he loves closed-end funds more than he hates PIMCO because he kept, the, he kept PDI, he kept these other funds, he kept 40 or $50 million positions in an institution that, that you know, he, was a, he was at war with, and, and it's because, of course, that uh, he doesn't have those same investment uh, options at, at Janus. Um, so, um, so it's been blessed by the old and new bond kings, but, but you know, yet these discounts uh, remain. And so, um, so when I think about this liquidity question, just to turn, turn my attention to that, um, uh, you know, liquidity isn't great. Isn't great compared to what? I, I sit in a world where investors are excited to raise funds to invest in, you know, Italian non-performing loans sold by one bank that they'll never be able to sell to, you know, if they're lucky, or, or vendor financing, or, you know, private credit. And, and so, you know, the, the funny thing is that the, the real good comparison that I, I think may be interesting for this group today is CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, um, which are pools of loan risk managed by the same kind of managers as closed-end funds, uh, Blackstone, GSO, for example. And, and, and those pools are so in demand and we don't have time today, unless I'm allowed to go over it, even you know, go into it as much as I want to. But those are really um, not all that different when you think about you're paying for active management, someone to manage a pool of, of credit risk. It's, not, it's really not that different, except that it's tranched. Those pools might surprise you. The, the junior tranches trade at large premiums to NEV. They often trade at premiums larger to NEV than closed-end funds trade at a discount. And so maybe my you know, most interesting um, anecdote from, from just... Investing in closed-end funds is we were um, a large holder of BGB, 
which I think is an excellent closed-end fund. It's very reasonable fees. It is a final maturity. I really hope that's not my phone. That would be embarrassing, um, and it's not. So, um, and BGB owns, owns loans, so it's providing value to the market by investing in an asset class that's hard for retail investors to access, and I'll get to that later. We'll talk about equities. And... Um, and I would look at it at minus 12 or minus 13. It's 80% secured loans. And, um, and marvel that this was at minus 12. And how can I rightfully let my credit analysts at our firm tell me which bonds to buy or sell individually when GSO, you can invest in them and have a 12-point head start? And so I'd say in meetings, I can't, I can't, it's hard. When GSO has a 12-point head start, it's, it's hard to imagine beating them. And by the way, with a zero-point head start, it'd be hard to imagine a, a manager of uh, credit risk doing better than owning um, discounted BGB. And then one day I realized we also own something called Richmond Park, which is a CLO. We broke each of them open. We found the majority of the positions were the same. And so I thought, okay, now because this is a minus 12, I have to go and sell that. I can't rightfully hold both of them. We sold Richmond Park at a 21-point premium to NAV. And so just to tell you how crazy the market I didn't even know, you know, how crazy the market is that you can have two different securities that are two different pools that are so that are really on different tracks that you can sell CLOs like hotcakes and closed-in funds still are still are at this discount um, okay so so just to keep going um, we got heavily involved after taper tantrum uh, credit spreads widened rates rose markets fell fixed income closed-in funds went from premiums to discounts and then the markets bounced Closed-in funds didn't, or at least the discounts didn't recover. And if anything, the discounts increased from 2013 to 15. And, you know, that's especially unusual because over that period, it was yields that people were so in need of. That's why CLOs are so popular. That's why, you know, various types of investments are in such demand. People can't find enough yield, yet they can get yield at a discount through, through this product. And, um, and I think that closed-in funds today, with spread so low, you know, take HYG at five and change, take off rates, you're at three and change, and there'll be some defaults. So on an unlevered basis, you're not doing better than three and change per year. Um, if, if spreads don't continue to tighten, and, the, and they're, in my view, just as likely to widen, if not more so, over time. Um, and so, you know, for, for that environment to be able to buy things at such a large discount, um, is even in many ways more interesting than back in 2008 when they were at bigger percentage discounts, but not necessarily bigger point discounts, and the product suffered from uh, unstable leverage because of the auction rate preferred component, which you're probably mostly familiar with. So the product is better now. Yield is so scarce, yet um, yield is plentiful in uh, closed-end fund world. Um, Another interesting thing uh, is that I used to have to explain, you know, what, well, what happens if you want to sell them? What happens if, if you have redemptions? Where will you be able to sell? Will the discount widen? And I think there's been an evolution in the last year in, in investors' minds, really, which came after the Third Avenue um, uh, situation, debacle, fiasco. I don't know what's, what's the least polite or most polite thing to call it, but, but where, where the markets basically seized up and uh, a mutual fund that had a, a high component of triple Cs couldn't um, meet the redemptions and, 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 um, and had to gate. And so, you know, when you think about daily liquidity funds compared to a closed-end fund, that, that an ETF like HYG or what have you will have to sell. And when, are they, when do they have to sell when they get outflows? And they, it's almost like clockwork that the outflow comes when the market has fallen. It's not that the outflow comes after a rally. And the inflow comes after a bounce. That those costs of, of trading out of, 
of risk because of uh, overnight liquidity that's being provided, I think has shown some weaknesses in, um, in some of the um, e uh, ETFs and mutual funds that are holding highly illiquid risk. And this has happened in, in really a bull market. Let's see what happens in a bear market where people are headed for the door at the same time. Whereas the closed-end fund, you know, no one can force Bennett Goodman at GSO to sell. He has effectively permanent capital. And so, so I think, um, you know, funds like that that have relatively modest fees over the ETF, which doesn't have low fees either, HYG has 50 basis points in expenses. I think the ETF... Um, we've learned, you know, actually can destroy value over time as it gets inflows and outflows um, in, in difficult markets. And, um, and Bloomberg had written articles about this. Isn't, isn't HYG great? You can get in and out of junk bonds for a penny when junk bonds are, have a bid offer of, of 45 cents. And so the article said HYG liquidity is 44 times better than the underlying securities. So that sounds like alchemy. You know, something's 44 times better. Well, wow, did they, did they build a spaceship and go to, like, no, they put something in a, in a box and, and, and it trades for a penny. Is that alchemy? What, what's, the, what's the problem with that? The problem, of course, is that um, over time, you can get in and out for a penny, but as, as redemptions uh, happen or creations, um, the daily bid lists to sell some of the securities or, or offer lists um, really do chew up a lot of uh, value uh, the, more, the more churn there is, and, and we've seen that in the past year. Um, okay, so just because I see I'm down to just a few minutes, um, I want to just turn to um, why we launched CEFS uh, last month, and then maybe I'll come back and talk a bit more about activism, or we can do it in the Q&A. Um, so we really wanted to access a new set of investors who don't or can't invest in a hedge fund. Um, we wanted to provide rate hedge products to that earlier question, how do, you, how do you deal with interest rate risk? We actually hedge it out. We think in this environment, investors are not only scared of higher rates, even if it hasn't happened the, yet, but I think higher rates are probably the biggest risk to the discount widening because investors are so scared of it. It was the cause of the, the whole thing in 2013 with taper tantrum, and we would rather hedge rates out and, and get back that yield for investors by using a bit of leverage, uh, maybe quarter uh, time or, or 0.5 leverage to, um, to own more hedge closed-end funds um, and get back to roughly an 8% uh, uh, payout. Um, we think we can significantly outperform passive closed-end fund ETFs for a number of reasons. When the passive products rebalance, they have to tell the market in advance what they're doing. And we've seen, um, uh, you know, sometimes those rebalances are very large for a short period of time. And so last year, for example, um, uh, we saw the discount uh, even widen with very good supply in the cloud family of funds, GLO, GLQ, GLV. And we were able to, in a fairly, I think, quick, quick and nimble way, go from no position to a large position. We now own over 17% of one of those funds um, and get it at uh, mid-teens discounts um, on, the, on the bulk of the position. Um, we started, just in terms of active management, uh, you'll be surprised, we started in March with 20 holdings, um, and now we have 21, but it hasn't been a change of one. We've had 18 come and go. Nine of them were fairly small size. We've had 18 that we already traded in and out of within a month. So you can get a sense that there's a very high frequency of turnover. If something moves a few percent, a couple percent, without much of a reason, in our screening and our models, others will look more attractive. We also think we can apply our expertise on when to decrease leverage below 1x even, when to go closer to 1.5x per signals that we're getting from other markets, from volatility, from derivatives, and otherwise. And um, 
We also try to price it reasonably compared to the passive indices. Um, and when you consider the leverage adjusted fee, um, it's actually not very different than um, uh, the passive uh, ETFs. And, and lastly, if the discounts persist for too long, uh, we can add value as we have in the past couple of years by taking these double digit stakes, not, we're not capped at 3%. And if you make the call with, with 10% or, or 15%, um, I, I have a feeling the reception is very different um, for, for managers that, uh, that have much smaller percentages. And at least by virtue of our size relative to the market size, you know, we have 90 million of a single closed-end fund that BlackRock um, uh, manages. Uh, we can have big positions, but, um, but because of our size, and we can take $100 million positions, uh, it allows us to go after um, managers who we think are not doing, uh, acting in the best interests of shareholders on much larger funds than some of our peers in the activism space. So I, I have about nine hours more material, but I see my, my time's up. So maybe if, if it's okay with the um, organizers, maybe take one or two questions or as you like. You don't mind. Oh. Okay. One que how about one question? One, one question. What's the underlying index? We, we, we really uh, are, are buying across closed ends, whatever. We have a fairly wide um, mandate which ones we can buy. Uh, and, and so there's a mix of, of equity, fixed income. Um, we're not trying to track a particular index. It's, it's actively managed. We don't have a, um, it's, it's opportunistic rather than versus a benchmark. We, so we, we went through the normal procedures to, to get it um, listed, and, and uh, actually there's some people from our team that can go through that with you uh, afterwards. Uh, someone's really excited. Let's see. Let's, can we do one more? Someone just jumped up to ask a question. If, all right. This is going to be a great question. Oh, geez. <laughs> I didn't see the mic. Um, so my question is about conflicts of interest. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the PM of both the LP as well as the, the ETF, yeah? And uh, you just mentioned, you know, the, the cloud example, right? Um, and then just now you had referenced a situation where in the, the ETF you have the ability to, you know, pursue activist opportunities um, where also in the LP structure you've got bigger, more concentrated positions, and now in the ETF you have a stake where it's voting along. And I'm not criticizing, I'm just curious, how do you manage the conflicts of interest that you're one of the most savvy CEF you know, players, but now you also have this passive vehicle that you're also running? So the, the vehicles, the, the ETF is, is not doing the exact same thing as the hedge funds. The ETF is meant to be in more of the liquid uh, closed-end funds that we think are very attractive. Um, we understand when we go above 9.9% that we are, are going to be longer-term investors uh, in, those, in those funds. And so we, we, it, it's, there's a higher bar for um, whether we would do that in, um, in the ETF. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a less concentrated portfolio, but there's no conflict in for all our investors trying to realize shareholder value. I think where the conflict is, what we've seen is other managers that will vote against a proposal that will go take the discount from, you know, 
x to 0, right, a discount to tender is 2 or 0, because they would rather see the space be, be bigger. We would rather see our investors um, be able to realize that, that discount. And there's, of course, dozens of other similar products, be it mutual funds, closed-in funds, or ETFs, that they can then invest in that um, uh, have a better value proposition for, for their investors. So I, I, don't, I don't see, for all of our investors, ETF or the LP or the, or the hedge funds, we are, we're trying to maximize value. Thanks very much today. Thank you.